Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today, author and social critic Oz Guinness pays a visit to the porch. We'll discuss what else, place, limits, and liberty, as well as his journey from Mao's China to America, where Oz has been a passionate voice for freedom, rightly understood. Thanks for joining us. Pull up a chair. My guest today is Oz Guinness. Dr. Guinness is well-read and well-written with published books numbering in the dozen. He is also well-spoken, a man who can hold an audience by simply reading a phone book, but he's even better commenting on important issues, as I hope he does today. His soon-to-be-released book is entitled The Magna Carta of Humanity. Oz Guinness, welcome to the Brass Platoon and the Front Porch Republic. Thank you, John. What a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, it's only my second show. And we've already got the author of the Magna Carta on. So our booking agent is doing quite well. Oz, uh, for the Front Porch Republic, place, limits, and liberty are areas of focus uh, for the site and this podcast. And I believe you're a man who can speak to all of those, especially liberty, which has been a focus of your writing for some time. But we'll take these in order and begin with place. So let me ask you the standard opening question here on the Brass Platoon. What does home mean to you? <laughs> well, in a word, everything, John. Uh, the reason probably in my own background, I was born in China during World War II, where there was anything but home. The Japanese invaded and there were 17 million killed. And we were living in a very insecure area between the Japanese troops and the communist troops and the nationalist troops. And we were caught in a famine in which 5 million died in three months, including my two brothers. So life was very precarious. And we then moved to Nanjing, Nanking then, which had experienced the horrendous rape of Nanking. And I was there during the climax of the Chinese revolution. And during that time, because the educational situation was so precarious too, I was sent by plane to a boarding school at the grand old age of five. And I can remember being incredibly homesick. So home has always meant the world to me. And there's nothing more precious to me than say my early mornings with my wife over coffee or a late afternoon drink with my son and friends or Above all, the supper table. You know, the Irish have a phrase that the home is the heart that means the most to you. And that's certainly so for me because of my background. And your accent does sound a bit more Irish than at Chinese. And I believe, I believe you even have beer in your blood. Is that correct? I do. <laughs> my accent's actually more English because I went to school <laughs> in England. But my family is certainly Irish. You know, I'm descended from Arthur Guinness, who started the family firm. And he was a man who was not only a great producer of beer and an entrepreneur and as a businessman, but as a person of faith too, and uh, meant a great deal to him. And for him, Ireland was home, very much. 
Well, Front Porch for Public Draw is an eclectic mix, and so not everyone in our audience is likely to be familiar with your work. Most of our audience is familiar with Wendell Berry, who I know you have cited at least once in your 2008 book, The Case for Civility. You quote Berry favorably while discussing the problems of the religious right. And the line you use from Mr. Berry is, quote, the Christian gospel is a summons to peace calling for justice beyond anger, mercy beyond justice, and love beyond forgiveness. So you may have gained some porch cred right there. Uh, we'll put a bit of it on the line now and just ask you if you have any more thoughts on Wendell Berry and others like perhaps Sir Roger Scruton, who have emphasized the love of home in an age of mobility. Any thoughts on those thinkers or others in this realm? Well, as you, you mentioned Magna Carta, that's my third book on freedom. And if time allows and the Lord spares me, I would like to write another short fourth one called Under Our Own Vine and Fig Tree. Because I truly believe that, you know, George Washington quoted that 48 times. <laughs> and that was his own longing to get back to uh, his estate and to live there under his own vine and fig tree. Of course, that ideal comes from the Bible, and many people think of it as messianic. But in fact, one of the references in the Bible is from the description of the time of Solomon, when there was such peace that people were able to live in peace under their own vine and fig. And I love that idea because it's the perfect balance, localism, to today's globalism. And sadly, the momentum has gone with globalism, the new world order, global reset, and all that. And one of the things it rides over roughshod is home and place and locality. So I would be a strong champion of that. And of course, there's no greater champion than Wendell Berry himself. So that idea is incredibly important. Now, of course, you know the old saying of René both think globally, act locally. That will be a mirage unless we balance all the potential of the global world, which technology has opened up, with the importance of roots and home and the local. And at this point, there isn't really a statement at the highest level that does that, apart from Wendell Berry. There are a few people wrestling with it, but I see no one at the national level doing that. I think that's incredibly important because there are all sorts of things, the importance of family and place and so on, which the global will override unless we're careful. And have you ever had a chance to meet Mr. Barry? No, sadly not. Not surprised he doesn't move around a lot from his Kentucky home, but um, did you ever cross paths with the late uh, Roger Scruton? I, I met him, yes, certainly, but more in philosophical circles and so on. And I know you also had some acquaintance with uh, E.F. Fritz Schumacher, author of Small is Beautiful, another touchstone for many of our listeners. Well, many years ago, I had the privilege of uh, speaking on the same platform as him uh, when I was much younger, and he then was much older, but I'm his age now. <laughs> and I know you had a significant relationship with Francis and Edith Schaefer. Tell us if you would, about that and what you may have learned about the value of hospitality from them. And uh, tell us where you were when you were with them. Well, their home, which they called l'abri, which is the French word for shelter, which is actually based on 
Psalm 91, um, the Lord is our refuge and shelter. It grew. It wasn't something planned strategically. They just had people in for meals. And when their kids went to university, they invited friends home for lunch and uh, they discussed things deeply. And then they stayed for dinner and then they stayed for the weekend. And eventually people said, could we stay and study under you? And slowly a community grew. But at the heart of it was hospitality. So Francis Schaeffer became pretty well known. But actually, the secret of the Brie was Edith Schaeffer, his wife, because she too had been born in China. That's why we got on so well. But she was immensely hospitable, a tireless energy, got up at 5.30 in the morning and could work through till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. the next morning. But she could cook at the drop of a hat for 40 people easily. So I remember the meals at Labrie. It'd be 40 people in a big chalet dining room. And you'd have, they often lasted three hours. And we'd have a bowl of soup or an appetizer. And Schaefer would say, does anyone have a question? And then it would roll. So hospitality and home was very much at the heart of the best of Labrie. Now, Edith would share, there's a cost to it. In other words, in a world that's so alienated and mobile as ours, People would love the notion of hospitality and home, but it's costly. She said, you've got to be prepared to have people vomit on your best rug or whatever. And you can see that the, uh, hospitality is incredible, but it is costly. Remind us of the time frame here that you're, you're there with the Schaefers. And how long were you? you you've, I believe you lived at Labrie with, with him for some time. Is that correct? Well, I went for three weeks one summer in 1967, and then stayed on for the best part of five years and met my beloved wife there and so on. And we had our own chalet and people in to have hospitality and discussions with us. And we took that idea back with us to when we were at Oxford. And every Friday, we'd serve lasagna or something like that and have 30 or 40 people in our home for a, a great discussion among graduate students at Oxford. Now, I think the important thing is, though, Labrie in the 60s was part of an incredible decade. So my first book, which is on the 60s, just been reissued by the publisher, because in many ways, the 60s are the key to understanding where we are today. I first came to this country, America, as a visitor tourist in 1968. And, you know, Martin Luther King assassinated, Senator Robert Kennedy assassinated, the Vietnam War protest. A hundred American cities were ablaze in 68. But I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement at Berkeley. I went to Fillmore West with Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane and so on. It was a fascinating time. But you could see how incredibly important what was coming, the making of the counterculture. And it was in 68 that Rudi Deutschker in Germany and Herbert Marcuse in California called for a long march through the institutions. And in many ways, as you can see 50 years later, they succeeded. In other words, there was a cultural Marxism which took over the schools, universities, press and media, and the so-called culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment. And that is, think of things like the cancel culture, speech codes and so on, that has captured much of the soul of American culture today and really changed the character of the Republic out of all recognition. So I, I was grateful to come here at a very critical time 
and to be challenged as a European admirer of this country to try and follow these developments ever since. And you've been a great Tocquevillian observer of America and commenter since that time. But I believe your best-selling book is The Call. Is that correct? Yes, that far outsells all the others. Well, I can understand why. And I'm, I'm happy to add for our listeners that it makes a great gift for graduates with graduation season fast upon us. Speaking of calling a bit, uh, there are certainly strains within Christianity that see a missional obedience as being strongly linked to mobility. And of course, this has its justification. Matthew's version of the Great Commission, Jesus tells his followers, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And this is a mantra for many. I think back to my youth where I attended a YWAM, a Youth with a Mission event called the Jesus Go Fest that seemed to capture that spirit well. There were hundreds of people in a field in East Texas listening to Stephen Curtis Chapman sing songs like Saddle Up Your Horses, and we were hearing about why we need to go to some foreign land and serve the Lord. But today, I wonder if we don't need a Jesus Stay Fest to encourage faithful obedience in the place where we are now. So we, as, as we close out our section on place and the proponents of place, I would like to ask you how you see a focus on place interacting with your focus on calling. Remember, calling doesn't start with Jesus in the New Testament. It goes back to Abraham. You know, leave, as the Jews put it, your country, culture, and kin. And he was called as an individual, but then as a family. So part of the promise to Abraham in Genesis was that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so you could argue that globalization is genuinely in the DNA of both Jews and Christians. And the challenge, though, is to balance those two. As I said, René Dubo's maxim, it's easy to say, think globally, act locally, but very, very hard to do. And we've got, clearly got to do both. So Abraham was for a long time a family and then a tribe and then a nation, but the local was never lost. So even when they became a new people and you have the Exodus and Deuteronomy, part of the purpose was that they would live a just life and so on, but that the Lord would be present among them, the so-called tent of meeting. So from then onwards, right through till the New Testament and Jesus of Nazareth, that local, that bodily, you take Jesus's stress on dailiness, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, or give us today our daily bread. And we've got to always remember, we are just little bodies, and we live in today, and we are at home here and now. So, but at the same time, with technology, I've done, I did one stage this last year, uh, six two-hour Zooms to China, the land of my birth. And there were a thousand people on every Zoom. It was incredible. My father, who spoke fluent Chinese, I don't, Mandarin, he would have been incredibly envious of the opportunity I had to speak six times to a thousand Chinese. And that's the blessings of technology. We can be anywhere in the world within 24 hours. Now, the challenge today is to balance that so we're living faithfully and humanly. But we've got to have both sides. Indeed. Turning to limits, I'll note that there was a major victory for place and limits 
uh, with the spectacular flop of the European Football Super League. I'm just curious, did you bring any soccer loyalties with you across the pond? Well, I've been for nearly 70 years a passionate supporter of Arsenal, very much behind the fans. And of course, the fans would like to get out the owner, who happens to be an American, who owns five other teams. And so Arsenal is just for him a business. Whereas for the fans, well, for some of them, it's almost a religion. But for the fans, it's something personal and very much local. So I was delighted that in this case, the fans won. Now we know that with most business things, that's not the case, that the globalists and the global reset people are likely to win. And we've got to watch that. As we mentioned before, there you have roots with the uh, Guinness Brewing family. And on your website, in addition to a harp that's familiar to many beer drinkers, visitors will see the tagline, a quiet voice on behalf of faith, freedom, truth, reason, and civility. And in our age of boisterous self-promotion, not too many writers are pitching themselves as a quiet voice. What do you mean by that? Well, the origins of that is that in the scriptures for Jews and Christians, hearing is more important than seeing. And that's totally against our modern world of images and graphics and the loudness of everything. Now, if we take words seriously, you can see that the American Republic is dying for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is the poisoning of speech. So in the scriptures, you have a high view of human dignity. You respect people the way you deal with them, including the way you talk to them. You have a very high view of truth. So you take our postmodern world where they say God is dead and truth is dead following Nietzsche, and all you have left is power. But then thirdly, you have a very high view of words. Words are commitments. Now, in America, words have been, on the one hand, trivialized. As soon as you say words, Americans say verbiage. Now, in England, we say verbiage of things that are empty words, but we'd never say that about normal words. And yet we've also not just belittled words, we've weaponized words in this country for advertising, for political conflict, and so on. So quite literally, the republic depends on trust, trustworthiness, and civility, because civility carries the respect for people, a respect for truth, and a respect for words. So I always try, I don't always succeed, in talking in ways that mirror and, and presuppose and help freedom, because freedom depends on words. And you have written many words. Uh, you are a rare public voice who has authored more books than tweets, as far as I can tell. Why have you stuck with the book as your primary medium? Well, I think the book is the carrier of Western and probably the world's wisdom, and I know the Western world better. It's the carrier of wisdom. Whereas uh, the social media, they're obviously brief and hasty. And so they appeal to the worst in us. What's my first reaction if you insult me? You know, when the last president was elected, one of his friends said to me, you know, he's a queen's boy. You punch a queen's boy, he'll punch you 
straight back. That's what they do. And you can see that counterpunching was characteristic of the former president and at the heart of the worst of his invective. Now, he was given to as much as he was giving. There's no question. But the American discourse is part of the toxic poisoning of the Republic. And there needs to be a reformation at the level of civility, as well as many, many other levels. But that's a very, very key one, which people certainly from the Jewish and Christian faith should take very seriously. And as you mentioned, uh, civility is important to you. You wrote a book called The Case for Civility. The subtitle was and why our future depends on it. That was written in 2008, today at 2021. So the future is now. <laughs> and in that still roiling wake of President Trump, how are we doing and what are the prospects going forward? Well, we're not doing at all well, but it's not just the former president. I didn't mention his name because people get obsessed with him, pro or con, whereas the problems are far deeper. So if we take the problem of truth and civility. We've got to go back to Nietzsche and the rise of postmodernism and the way through cultural Marxism, these ideas have been weaponized. And you know that cultural Marxism proceeds by analyzing discourse. So you look at what a nation is saying, and particularly what it takes for granted as true and good and so on. And then you're looking for who's the oppressor, who's the victim and things like that. So you analyze discourse, but not to reform it, but to find the victim in a power play and use that to subvert the status quo. So both postmodernism in all its philosophical sophistication and Roger Scruton used to tackle that, but also cultural Marxism and its present power and the radical left, both of them are totally disasters for persuasion and disasters for civility and therefore undermine the American Republic. The American Republic is committed to freedom. Freedom has certain requirements. And without that, it's finished. The American Republic, well, put it this way, the intellectuals of America and the radical left of America are kneeling on the neck of America with as disastrous consequences as we saw for poor George Floyd this summer. The Republic is on its last guard. Well, that is a striking image. And perhaps with that, as we segue from limit to liberty, which you've already begun to talk about, let's talk about the concept of ordered liberty and why you believe that is so important. What does disordered liberty look like? We may be living in that time now. And what limits are needed so that liberty can be properly ordered? Well, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, great thinker of the 1950s generation, he would say the bookends of history politically our authoritarianism, which is order with no freedom, and anarchy, the other extreme, which is freedom with no order. And of course, the link between the two of them is that the more anarchy you have, reduced to what Hobbes calls the state of nature, the war of all against all, you swing from anarchy, which no one can live with, to authoritarianism. People would prefer order to chaos. Now, that's the bookends. The genius of what Abraham and his family were called to, and then Moses introduced in the Exodus, and then the Reformation reintroduced in the 16th century, and America took over in the 18th century was the notion of ordered freedom. Freedom 
within a constitutional order, although the roots of that were the covenant. So Lord Acton, the great historian of freedom, he'd say the basic choice is freedom, the permission to do what you like, or the power to do what you ought. Freedom requires truth, it requires character, and it requires a way of life. It's not just doing what you like. An American freedom libertarian style, it's all negative. I was at Oxford with Isaiah Berlin. I was a student, he was an eminent professor. But you know his idea, there's a negative freedom and a positive freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. No one is free under the control of someone else, whether a colonial power or a bully. You have to be free from, but that's only the beginning of freedom. Positive freedom is freedom for, freedom to be. But for that, you need truth to know what you're supposed to be. So freedom requires certain things. And you could say uh, institutional things like schooling and so on. Now, America has a, today, a lot of the rampant uh, libertarianism, let alone some of the radical left ideas, very unrealistic views of freedom. So freedom, too, is in a deep crisis today. Recent challenge for freedom, it's certainly been the pandemic that we are still in and hopefully are emerging from. But there have been cries of freedom without much thought of what responsibility we may bear to our neighbors. And uh, there have been some very dramatic measures, lockdowns and the like. How do you see this time, this pandemic as a test of freedom? What have we done well? What have we done poorly? Well, on the particular point you're raising, clearly some of the elites view the pandemic as part of the global reset. In other words, don't waste a good crisis and bring in what's rational and global and centralized and bureaucratically controlled and so on. So many of these movements have been part of that globalist temptation, which is very much against Wendell Berry's place and very much against freedom, which is local and personal, and so on. But we've got to say many of the reactions to it have been understandable and right, but ill-considered. In other words, they've been all negative freedom without any sense of positive freedom. But real freedom is not only freedom to be yourself, myself, to speak and freely, and so on, the, the basic freedoms of conscience and speech and assembly, it includes responsibility. Choices have consequences. So everything I do freely as an individual, I am responsible for. And we forget there are only rights if we're exercising responsibility. But the third part of that is not just freedom and not just responsibility, but respect for others. And this is the tough one. In other words, it's easy for me to want my freedom or you to want yours, but we've got to respect everyone's freedom. So that respect for others is automatically a self-limitation for myself. Now, the Jews are actually very insistent on the wonderful truth that God's freedom respects human freedom so that he limits himself never invading the human heart, which is a remarkable idea, which we've got to copy. Now, how then with people with strong differences from us respecting their freedom, how do we do it? Well, that's the challenge of living out how we live together freely and justly together. Because none of us can be ourselves 
by ourselves. We need others, and the challenge of living together with others comes in. Now, biblically, as a person of faith, I can look in the Jewish scriptures and so on and see the answers to many questions, which are very profound and very challenging. I think that goes back to what I said earlier, the ideal of living under our own vine and fig tree. And we've got to figure that out. I, I hope, I keep challenging the political leaders I know, to balance the stress on globalism with a genuine understanding of localism. Well, that's rare. And it seems you're touching on themes that I suspect you are developing in your forthcoming book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, which is subtitled Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Tell us a, a bit about what your, what your message is there, how it uh, dovetails, but perhaps differs from 2018's Last Call for Liberty. And uh, 2012, you wrote a free people's suicide, sustainable freedom in the American future. What does this forthcoming book add to that? This is the last of my three, unless I have the time to write the one of the vine and fig tree. But the others were principally critique of where America is today and where it's going wrong today. Whereas this book, when people said, all right, the roots came out through the Reformation, out of Exodus, the Sinai Revolution. We owe more to Sinai than we do to Athens. But that would surprise a lot of people. The consent of the government, the separation of powers, the notion of constitution, all these are things that we owe to Sinai, to the book of Exodus, which should be considered a classic on a par to you know, Machiavelli and Marx and Mills and so on. But this book is much more constructive. So there are chapters on the positive things you have in the Sinai Revolution, which we need to consider or reconsider today. Just, just take one. At the heart of Sinai is the notion of freedom and transmission. So the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? 400 odd years of slavery, they're going free tonight. Does he talk about freedom? No. They're going to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Does he talk about the promised land? No. What does he talk about? Three times, children. In other words, the story that we tell to our children is the secret to first, identity of a people, and secondly, continuity. So Rabbi Sachs, one of my great heroes, he puts it simply, if you have any project, and freedom's an example, any project that takes longer than a single generation, you need history and you need school. Now, that's true of faith. That's also true of freedom. America used to have civic education. Well, much civic education was thrown out at the end of the 1960s. And now, the traditional view of America, which may have been romanticized at various points, has been replaced by the Howard Zinn view or the 1619 Project view, which gives you a very anti-American view of America. Well, freedom simply can't last if that continues. In other words, freedom requires transmission. The Jews have survived thousands of years despite no country, no capital, no monarchy, no priesthood, none of the things they thought were essential. They've been scattered, they've been horrendously persecuted, but to their incredible tribute, they survived. And the reason is transmission. 
In your writing on freedom, you have focused a good bit on two important dates, 1776 and 1789. Remind us of the key differences between those dates and why they're important today. It's no secret that America is as deeply divided today as at any time since the 1850s. Why? Some blame the social media, some blame the former president, some rooted in the clash between the coastals, California and New York against the heartlanders. Some see it as the difference between the populists and the globalists, and all of those factors play their part. The deepest division, I believe, is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which through the Reformation goes back to the Hebrew Scriptures, and those who understand America from the perspective of the heirs of the French Revolution and its ideas, because they flowed out in the 19th century revolutionary nationalism, in the 20th century principally revolutionary socialism or communism but in our century, revolution, uh, revolutionary liberationism or cultural Marxism. Now, when you compare the two, they have different sources, Hebrew scriptures, the French Enlightenment. They have different views of humanity. The Enlightenment ideas are utopian. The biblical ideas are very realistic, say, separation of powers because things go wrong and humans abuse power because we're sinners and so on. James Madison and the Federalist 51. And you could go on right down the line. This year, the big differences are over justice. Both sides see injustice as evil. No question. The differences come in how you address it. With the radical left, you address it in terms of power, weaponizing victims and so on. In the Jewish and the Christian understanding, you have notions, I'll use single words, but you could unpack each of these for an hour. Truth addressed to power, repentance, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation. So wrongs are put right and enemies are reconciled. Enemies are turned into friends that the Jews and Abraham Lincoln say. So both sides agree over injustice. These things are wrong but the disagreement comes over how you address it. And we need to see the different outcomes. Let me be blunt. No radical left revolution has ever worked. And the oppression never ends. And in the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I think we see the, for the first time a civil rights movement, first time in America at least, that has been disjointed from it roots in the black church. What do you think the impact of that is? And where is that going to take us? If we lose these roots to yeah. scripture, to a grounding in truth, where are we headed despite the correct focus on injustice that the BLM movement has provided us? We're headed towards oppression in the long run. Let's be clear. Slavery in human history is sadly the norm. Abolition reform is the novelty. And the leaders, the great reformers, you take the greatest, Bartolome Las Casas, or William Wilberforce, John Woolman, these were people, or come into American history, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr. All of these addressed it out of a biblical framework of understanding human dignity, 
and the injustice of the abuse of power. Let's be absolutely clear. So Black Lives Matter is only true because all lives matter, but we have to have a basis for that. All lives matter only because at their highest, they're made in the image of God. So if we look at defining humans downward, we're just tool makers or selfish genes or naked apes or whatever, you will eventually have a lower view of humanity and the old story of oppression will begin over again. So this present discussion is critical for human rights. We're not only post-truth today, we're moving into a post-rights world. And so the outcome of the two, the left and the biblical understanding are very, very different, and it will make an enormous difference. The end of the republic, the end of freedom, but the beginning again of genuine abuse and repression. And one of those rights that is certainly out of fashion is the American First Amendment. On the left, the ACLU used to defend uh, unpopular speech. Now that seems to have been replaced on the left by this idea of cancel culture. Freedom of religion is under growing pressure from new sexual and gender orthodoxies. And so it sounds like you are in agreement with someone like Rod Dreher, who sees us as on a path towards a soft totalitarianism, perhaps a totalitarianism that's not so soft. How important are these freedoms in our Constitution, and how at risk are they today? Well, we've got to really go back to some of the foundations. What is human dignity? Why is it important? What is truth? What is freedom? What are words? We've got to go back to these foundational things because all of them are up for grabs. So when I first came to this country, you know, I was writing something. I was at the Brookings Institution. I wrote a one-pager on the importance of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience in American history. And it was a one-page, 10 points of why it mattered. It happened to fall into the hands of a senator and then into the hands of Chief Justice Warren Burger. And he invited me for lunch. I'd only been here a matter of months, and he said, look, I'm embarrassed. We have millions of dollars given to the celebration of free speech in the bicentennial of the Constitution. We have nothing for freedom of conscience and religious freedom. What would you suggest? And that is what became the Williamsburg Charter. So freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly are the three basic rights. And for 400 years, those things have been vital here. And I would say, America, I'm saying this as a foreigner, you've had the most nearly perfect expression of these things. There have been terrible violations, the nativist movement and so on, but you've had the most nearly perfect expression in history. But in the last 20 years, we've seen this incredible sea change. And now all the basic political rights are being challenged by one another. So freedom of religion, which I mentioned, now considered a license for bigotry and thrown out the window. Well, it's no mistake. If we throw our first freedoms out, we will reap the consequences. And perhaps we should end uh, near where we began with your beginning in your latest book, which I have not had a chance to read in full, but I did read the introduction. And you begin the Magna Carta of Humanity, with a stirring look to the eyes of a seven-year-old boy. Can you remind us what that seven-year-old boy saw and how it has shaped what you have done since? 
Well, I mentioned my background in China. When I was a seven-year-old, I remember the day in January 1949 when my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has abandoned the city to the Red Army. And slowly the news tightened. Lin Bao and his army came in. The reign of terror began. Hundreds were executed. There were trials every morning, executions in the afternoon. If we went out in the streets, neighbors who'd been very friendly a few weeks earlier were in mobs crouching, death to the blue-eyed foreign devils. In other words, I was there for two years under Mao Zedong. Now it became much worse, and eventually maybe 75 million Chinese were killed under the repression of Chairman Mao. But I saw the beginning of it, and I've never been Pollyannaish about Marxism ever since. Now, when I was at Oxford many, many years later, my tutor was at All Souls College, the college with no students and the elite of the elite. And one of the people there was the great philosopher of freedom, Isaiah Berlin. And as we were sharing stories, it turned out he was a seven-year-old boy in the Russian Revolution. And I was a seven-year-old boy in the Chinese Revolution, the two revolutions of the 20th century. So we agreed English-speaking freedom was the alternative. And at that time, we thought America would never fall for anything like even socialism was considered unthinkable because Americanism, the American dream and so on, was considered the surrogate for socialism. So we could never have imagined 50 years ago that America could be where it is today. Switching revolutions from the American to the French in its head. And the results, I'm afraid, will be disastrous. Well, I was going to thank you so much for your time. I'll give you a final word, perhaps a word of hope. What hope? In the face of this danger to freedom, can we look to? Well, I am a person of hope. And one of the questions I'm often asked is why, when you're so realistic, can you still be hopeful? And one way I put it, you could put it a whole lot of ways, but one way I put it, look at the situation in the world, the crisis of Western civilization, the crisis of the American Republic, the lead society in the world, the global situation with China, totalitarian society, coming to the fore more and more. And we're looking down towards transhumanism and singularity and all that these things will mean. Now, when you get into those discussions, they are an incredible. This is an amazing moment for humanity, not just for individuals. But the deepest questions raise issues that are only answered by the deepest answers. And you have those in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. I'm a person of faith, and I thank God that the deepest questions are throwing up things. You have to go back to a biblical view of freedom and truth and words and human dignity and these great ideas to rediscover them. And if we do, we can go forward, and the prospects of humanity are still bright. Oz Guinness, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, John. Thank you. Many thanks to Oz Guinness. Find out more about Oz at ozguinness.com. Oz is spelled O-S, and Guinness is spelled like the family brew. And speaking of brewers, my thanks to Wendell Kimbrew, not Kimbro as I mispronounced last time. Wendell's song, The Ballad of Frida the Goose, flies us into and out of each episode of The Brass Spittoon. 
More on him at WendellK.com. And so, until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home Find your way